0: Open up to Genesis 3. I do need to remind you that we are doing a study on Old Testament Christology, Christ in the Old Testament. I need to remind us all of that, including myself, because I can get off the beaten path a little bit, and it almost seems like we're studying the book of Genesis, doesn't it? (laughs) But we're spending some time in the first three chapters of Genesis because they are so foundational and also because Christ is so predominant in those first three chapters. But once we get past today's lesson, we're going to move at a quicker pace. We're not going to go verse by verse or anything like that, because otherwise we would be in Genesis for quite some time. But uh, remember, this is a study on the unrecorded Emmaus Road heartburn sermon. That's a long title, isn't it? So remember that these are Things that maybe Christ would have talked about with those two disciples on the way to Emmaus, away from Jerusalem. They didn't know who they were walking with, but it was the resurrected Christ on the very day of his resurrection. I don't know what he said to them about himself in the Old Testament, but one verse I can almost guarantee you that he did talk to them about would be one we're going to look at today, Genesis 3.15, which is called the Proto-Evangelium. It means the first evangelical, evangelical message. In other words, it's the first gospel, first time the gospel in seed form is presented in the scripture. And it is all about the seed, (laughs) with a capital S, the seed of the woman. Therefore, the title for today's message is The Gospel Seed. And there's a double play on that word. And we're going to be looking at verses 7 to 24. Let me read them, then we'll have our prayer, and then we'll get into our lesson. Let's start with reading it, starting at verse 7. Genesis chapter 3, and the eyes of them, that would be Adam and Eve, both were opened. This is after, of course, they have partaken of the forbidden fruit. And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God. Now, this would be the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? First question in the scripture right there. Where art thou? That's a question he's still asking Adams today. You know what Adam means? Man. Where art thou? In your relationship with me, in other words. And he, Adam, said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he, the Lord, said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, The woman. Don't you love that? Her fault. The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field, upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. Now, here it is the seed gospel, the gospel seed. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. First time the gospel is presented. Unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children. And thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam he said, because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also, and thistles shall it bring forth to thee. And thou shalt eat the herb of the field in the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread till thou return unto the ground for out of it was thou taken for dust thou art and unto dust shalt thou return and Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothed them And the Lord God said, behold, he's talking to himself again, the triune Godhead. The man is become as one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the garden cherubims and a flaming sword, which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Let's pray. Father, truly and amazingly, how absolutely wondrous are your ways. As I was contemplating on the situation there, back so long ago in Eden, I thought what it would have been like if Adam had never sinned. We would at this very moment be all unfallen, immortal beings. And yet, as good as that sounds, yet our standing with you, our position with you, would remain at constant risk in in jeopardy. Thousands of years of of faithful obedience could be undone by one mistake. So we would all be holding on to happiness very precariously. We could never fully settle back in absolute security of eternal life as we do now in the finished work of your Son. In Adam, we may have lost Eden but we have obtained an inheritance which is so far greater, one that Satan can never usurp. There are no ifs in the new covenant regarding Calvary's tree of life as there were in the Edenic covenant regarding that other tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There's now no chance of failure because there is no condemnation no condemnation to them that are in your son. So we have obtained a surer standing than we ever could have gained under the first Adam, even if he didn't sin. Because the last Adam, your son, not only undid all the mischief of the fall, but he has brought us into a closer relationship with you than we could have ever obtained by any other means. We are not simply your creatures by creation. Now, as members of Christ's body, we are your sons and daughters by adoption. We have the divine nature within. And now we are capable of a joy that even the holy angels cannot know experientially because it's the joy of forgiveness, of pardoned sin. And I thought about this or even more capable than the angels of a greater love for you because greater the forgiveness greater the love so father we just want to want to praise you for your infinite grace as we meditate on truths like this that reveal just how infinitely and intricately wise are your ways that you could use sinners such as us to reveal your glory because that's really what it's all about your glory And now we ask that you would bless this next hour of contemplation on your very first utterance of the glorious, grand gospel message. We pray that you alone would be lifted up, your son would be lifted up, for it's in his precious name that we do ask these things. Amen. I only have so much time to teach you, so I think, you know what? Why don't I teach them while I'm praying? (laughs) That was kind of a deep theological prayer, wasn't it? Mm. You know, for centuries, sociologists, have you, did you ever take sociology in school? Yeah. Uh, but sociologists for, for centuries have told us that if man could only clean up his environment, then what? Then he could reach his full potential. That's what, they, that's what their theory. However, the Bible, Bible says otherwise. The Bible contradicts that because it tells us that man was already tested in the most perfect environment imaginable, the Edenic utopian garden. He was tested there, and yet, did he reach his full potential? (laughs) No, he chose evil over good. The lies of Satan, well, Adam wasn't deceived, but nonetheless, he chose evil, disobeying God over, over good, obeying God. The Edenic utopia ended when Adam deliberately disobeyed the Edenic covenant. That was the fir- That's the first covenant in the Bible. It's a very short, it's a conditional covenant, and Edenic is just a fancy word for Eden. The covenant was made by God with man in Eden, so it's called Edenic covenant. It's in chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, and here is what it is. You can eat of every tree, Adam, except that one. If you eat of that one, guess what's going to happen? You will surely die. That's the Edenic covenant. There are... How many covenants do you think there are in the Bible? I'll give you a guess. Seven. Good guess. (laughs) Isn't that just like God? Seven covenants. This is the first one, the Edenic covenant. Okay, so the utopia ended when he took of the forbidden fruit of the knowledge of the, uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that disobedience could have ended a very short story on human history. Very short story. Because the Lord God... Based on his covenant and what he said, he had every right to serve divine justice right then and there. He could have struck both of them dead on the spot, their bodies underneath the tree, the knowledge of good and evil. I wonder what Ananias and Sapphira say about that. I only thought of that later. I should have had that as a homework question. Why do you think he struck Ananias and Sapphira dead for lying to the Holy Spirit, but he didn't strike Adam and Eve dead? Hmm. Think about that. See what you come up with. Maybe your leaders can ask you what you thought of during the. (laughs) It would be the end of the human race for one thing. (laughs) But of course, he didn't strike them dead. We wouldn't be here having a Bible study. The creation of Adam, the formation of Eve, their God-given test, Satan's subsequent temptation, and their fall into sin did not frustrate God's plans one bit. Not one bit. In fact, those events served as the beginning of an even greater story. The story of the last Adam and his victory over sin and the gospel message of salvation and man's adoption into the divine family of God. Not just the created family, flesh and bone bodies forever and ever, but glorified bodies and having the divine nature within. Isn't that a better story? And the first one would have been (laughs) well, having become sharply aware for the first time of their God given consciences, Adam and Eve immediately tried to cover their shame, their guilt and their shame by making aprons of fig leaves. Those aprons were man's first attempt to cover sin by the works of their of his own hand. This is like a template for all religions, which are all work systems, you know, to try to get to God to cover their sins their own way. But those self-manufactured aprons did not succeed in removing their sense of naked guilt and shame. Because when they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden at the cool you know, the afternoon, late afternoon, what did they do? They hid. They ran, they ran in fear. So we know it didn't, it, the, the aprons didn't work, taking away their guilt. Now, it was apparently the daily habit of the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. This is the first theophany of the scripture, the first Christophany, the first appearance of pre Christ with man on earth in the Bible. Well, other than, maybe it's the second, because he did have to cut Adam open to get out Eve. So maybe it's the second. But anyway... It's the first one where he's having this conversation. And he appears, of course, with Adam and Eve. And I guess he did that every day. We don't know the time frame, how many days before the fall happened. But on this particular fateful day, instead of running to him, what did they do? They ran from him, as sinners have been doing ever since. Isn't that what sinners do? Instead of running to God, they run from God. Isn't it strange? They will not flee from evil. But they will flee from God. Isn't it ironic? But it is so true, so true. And yet while man hides in shame and fear, the Lord there's grace all over this chapter. The the Lord seeks in grace and mercy. Genesis three nine is the loving call of the seeking shepherd. Isn't Jesus Christ the good shepherd? So here we see him calling to his sheep. Why did the Lord, do you think, leave his heavenly garden paradise to come down to the earthly garden paradise to seek sinful hiding Adam? Well, he did it for the very same reason that 4,000 years later, Made in the likeness of man, he would again leave his heavenly garden bliss to come down here to go to a garden named Gethsemane, where he would allow evil Adams, evil men, to arrest him. And he did it for the same reason that he allowed them, after they had scourged him unjustly and crucified him, he allowed evil men to place him in a garden tomb. Why did he do all that? Love. He did it to save Adam. Adam signifies, represents all of us, all mankind. And he did it so he could save us so that we could live in his heavenly garden with him forever and ever and ever. Hallelujah. Well, the Lord, this is, this is the first question in scripture. The Lord asked Adam, "Where art thou?" That's my God voice. <laughs> it scares the living daylights out of my grandchildren. "Where art thou, Adam?" It was like it wasn't it wasn't a, a cruel taskmaster, you know, about to beat to death his his slaves. This was the voice like a loving father, a broken-hearted loving father trying to reach out in love. To his wayward child. Now, when we study the life of Christ, we found that he often did this, didn't he? He often asked questions of his prodigal children to draw them out, to get them to seriously think about whatever issue was at hand. It was basically what he was doing when he asked questions of his two disciples on the road to Emmaus that resurrection Sunday afternoon. He was basically asking those two disciples, where art thou? I mean, you're on your way out of Jerusalem, the holy city. You've got your backs to the the tomb, the empty tomb. They knew it was empty. You got your backs to the cross and you're going to return to your former lifestyles. Where art thou in your relationship with me and with your understanding of scripture? Uh, don't you know that, you know, ought, ought Christ not to have suffered? And he's, I'm sure he talked to them about Genesis 3.15. The bruised heel talks about a suffering Messiah. Guys, didn't you get that? You should have. First gospel message. Anyway, so in, let's go back to Adam. In Adam's case, he had run and hidden in fear from God. He was lost. He's a fallen creature now he was lost not physically he knew where he was in the garden but he was lost spiritually the minute he took of the fruit he was he, he died spiritually and he died he began the dying process physically as well so the preincarnate says where art thou because he's trying to arouse conviction in adam he wanted adam to think how foolish it is to run from the only one who had the power and the and the away the solution to his dilemma. Why do men run from the only one who can answer all their problems in life? But they do, don't they? Well, on hearing the Lord's voice, and in the Hebrew, it's a thunderous voice. When the Lord speaks thunder, like last night, did you have a storm here? We did, thunder and lightning. And and I hate the curse on the ground because now my ground is covered with pine cones and sticks again. If only they'd stay up there. (laughs) Anyway, on hearing the voice and his searching question Adam what what should he have done what should Adam have done at this point in time he should have fallen on his face before the Lord and confessed I have sinned before thee and before heaven and I am no more worthy to be called thy son who said that prodigal exactly the prodigal son said that but that's not the way of fallen man unrepentant fallen man as Adam demonstrated for the first time to the watching universe. Instead, he told his loving creator that when he heard his voice, he was afraid. Now, why would he be afraid of God? God had was so loving and kind to even create him in the first place to give him everything he needed and a wonderful wife. Why was he afraid of him? The sin he had disobeyed. He said, oh, I heard your voice. I, w- I was afraid because I was naked. And so I hid. Well, the seeking savior... The good shepherd then went straight to the heart of the issue by asking Adam two more questions. He knew the answer to these questions. Adam doesn't really answer them, but the first one basically is, who told you you were naked? And have you disobeyed me by eating the forbidden fruit? Again, rather than confessing, an open confession, the once perfect, honest, Most intelligent man that has ever been on planet Earth gave his maker an excuse that was insulting, very childish, ungrateful, and it indicated a new attitude of self-defense. And you know what self-defense is a product of? Pride, yeah. Well, yeah, he was guilty all over the place, too. He says, The woman whom thou gavest to me... To be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. Who was he really blaming there? He's blaming God for the gift that he really wanted, because when he saw all those animals and they all had helpmates, he wanted one, didn't he? He knew he was missing his better half. So God gave him the greatest gift. You know, whoa, man, she's fantastic. And now here he's saying, well, you're the one that gave her to me. And then she gave me of the tree, and what could I do? had to eat it <laughs> didn't want to insult her cooking no she didn't cook that <laughs> so he blames God for giving him the woman then he blames the woman for giving him the. you know this is the origin of that very childish blame game you've all heard kids and grandkids and Sunday school kids play this well she made me do it you No, know? it wasn't me it was her it was him do we do that too Oh, Lord, I could really serve you if you hadn't given me that spouse of mine. (laughs) Got to cook for him, and I got to do his laundry and iron his handkerchiefs. My husband got handkerchiefs for um, his birthday present from somebody, and I thought, I remember back when my mom ironed all my dad's handkerchiefs. Yeah, yeah. Got better things to do than iron handkerchiefs. All right, so after playing the blame game, then, you know, did you notice very quickly he does admit, and I did eat, real quickly, and I did eat. Well, grace and mercy are again demonstrated in the fact that the Lord didn't strike Adam dead right then and there for inferring that he, God, had some, was somehow responsible for human sin. He's blaming God for sin, isn't he? And that Adam could say such a thing to the one who had given him life and had you know provided so abundantly for him his every need, including the wife, about whom earlier he ex- had explained, you know, oh, whoa, man, she's flesh of my flesh and bone of my bones. That he, that he could do that shows the devastating consequences of sin, doesn't it? Well, the Lord then turned to the woman, what is this that thou hast done? And in the one situation where she should not have followed the lead of her husband, what does she do? She follows the lead of her husband, and she, like Sapphira, She shouldn't have done that, too. She also plays the blame game. She shifts the blame onto the serpent. The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. She introduced the popular excuse that her children have been using ever since. You know what that is? The devil made me do it. (laughs) And while it was true that the devil did beguile Eve with his lies, his deceptions, He could not make her sin, could he? He couldn't make her sin. That was her own choice. She she chose to believe his lies over God's truth, God's word. Well, although Adam and Eve each managed to end their responses to the Lord's questions with a quick little confession, and I did eat, (laughs) four words, and I did eat. Do you see any real evidence of repentance? No. No, I don't we find more of an attempt to justify their sin. So the Lord had every right to strike our first parents dead on the spot as his holiness alone would have required. His holiness alone would have required that he fulfill his covenant promise and strike them dead right then and there. Nor, however, did he say, oh, well, you slipped up once. That's all right. It's just a piece of fruit. You know, I'll let it go. As his love alone would tend love alone would tend to do that right you ever do that with grandchildren just don't tell your mom and dad and we'll let it (laughs) slip. i never do that but you know (laughs) but holiness would you know strike them dead if it was only holiness love would okay let them go but what did the lord do well he dealt with their sin with his pronouncement of the curse that we'll read about in verses 14 to 19 But then he also, in loving grace, provided a covering. So you see, in his judgment, his judgment would include the opportunity for redemption. The curse, but then the covering. That's holiness and love together. Isn't that what he did on the cross? The two were joined together. The first to receive God's judgment, curse, was the creature Satan used to approach Eve. Evil. Eve, not evil. Uh, he is evil. This was evil in Eve. I never thought of that. All right, so he picked, uh, he picked, you know, because he's a spirit being. So in order to speak to Eve, he had to possess a body. So he picked a serpent. Now, the serpent didn't look like it does today. Apparently, it had some kind of legs that it could walk. Some say it might have been even upright. But the word for serpent in Hebrew is nachash. And it means shining one. So apparently the serpent was a brilliantly beautiful, shining kind of a creature. Why do you think Satan picked that creature? What had his name been? Lucifer, shining one. So And it was his vanity that he picked the most beautiful creature to, to talk to her. And that probably attracted her too. He says to the serpent cur- that he would be cursed above all cattle and cursed above all the beasts of the field, which means that all the other animals are cursed too. But he is cursed the most henceforth he was, the serpent, was to crawl on its belly. So that tells us it did have some other way of uh, getting around besides on his belly, and he would eat from the dust of the ground because he couldn't reach any higher. Now, that's one opinion that he cursed the literal creature, the serpent. There is another opinion on this, and that is that this was God's first part of his curse on Satan himself. This view says that verse 14 is a curse of symbolic shame on that old serpent, Satan, the devil, who would figuratively crawl away from Eden defeated. This view says that the expression to eat dust, like feeding on ashes, speaks of his reduction to a condition of great shame and contempt. That Satan of all God's creatures was the most lowly, you know, the most contemptible, the most shameful, even though he himself doesn't know shame, but he is the most shameful creature God ever created. Satan, the creepy, crafty, slithery serpent, does indeed manage to wind his way in and out among men, and doesn't he bring degradation with him everywhere he goes? Yes, he does. Now, we're not going to solve this debate today because it's been going on for centuries whether this was a curse on the literal serpent or symbolic of Satan I think it's both I think it's both literally on the serpent that he embodied and symbolically on Satan himself but one thing we do know when it comes how many of you like serpents how many of you like snakes any snake handlers here we had one yesterday she actually likes you like them oh you're so weird i always knew that <laughs> I don't know. Whenever, whenever I think God, they're out down there. You know, we have a lot of them where I live. Doesn't every time you see one, don't you think of the fall? Doesn't it? Isn't it a reminder of the fall? It is to me. Well, in Genesis three fifteen, we do know this was spoken. This is the curse on Satan. We do know this definitely, and give, giving the message to Satan, God presented the first messianic prophecy of the Scripture. Even the Jews, the ancient Jews, well, even today, they recognize that this is a messianic prophecy about the coming Messiah, that he would be the one who would defeat Satan, crush his head. It's also the first gospel proclamation. That's why it's known in theology as the proto-first evangelium, even, you know, evangelistic message. Now, it is, as I said, it's almost a sure thing that Jesus did talk about this verse on the road to Emmaus with those two disciples. Now, before we take a close look at this verse, I do want to quickly look at the rest of God's judgment on Eve and Adam and and the ground. But I want to do this really quickly because this isn't the focus of our lesson. If you want to get into more detail about it, you can get our Genesis 1 book where I'd, I'd get into more detail. But Eve's judgment was that she would suffer painful childbirth. Those of us who have had children, we know. Not too fun. But it's worth it, isn't it? It's worth it. But here's the one we really all hate, I think. Maybe some of you don't. But that we would desire the headship role in the family. We still have a struggle with that one. That's the woman's curse. Then Adam was to toil to meet his needs throughout his life. His needs and the needs of his wife, the needs of his family. He would have to toil from you know morning. To, to dust, that's, that's the man's curse, and the ground was also cursed, those pine cones will not stay up in the pine tree when there's a little wind, or even if there isn't a wind, but when I got up this morning and looked out my window, yuck, and I, we had, it never fails, we had just cleaned it all, it was perfect, because we're having company this weekend, it was perfect, and now it's a total mess, I hate the curse on the ground, anyway, you can't pick a rose without maybe getting, right Sylvia? thorns yeah that's the curse on the ground well and then as God warned in the Edenic covenant if you eat of that tree you'll surely die he tells them there that they would die their body eventually they would die they live long lives but they would eventually their bodies would return to the dust of the ground but before he gave all that bad news he gave the good news which would you rather have first the bad news or the good news well God gave the good news first He gave the good news in verse 15, which came, interestingly, by way of his curse on Satan. It certainly was not good news for Satan, but it was good news for mankind. Now, notice that the Lord did not ask Satan any questions, did he? Like he had with Adam and Eve. Did he say, where art thou, Satan? No. Did he um, take any pains to try to convict him of his sin? no did he try to dialogue with him did he try to reason with him about his sin nature no no dialogue with satan at all that's what eve should have done i don't know you don't talk to strangers you know she should should have listened to her mother ah that's the problem But Jesus Jesus did not speak to Satan at all. You know why? He was a hardened apostate spirit already doomed and without any hope of mercy or redemption. Why are the fallen angels not able to be redeemed? Make sure you read appendix number two when you get the email lesson. Because I talk about that. Why are the fallen spirits not redeemable like fallen man? There's a reason. And that will come whenever I get to finish the lesson and send it out to you. But I don't have time to talk about that. So what did the Lord do? He simply revealed to Satan the message that predicted his utter and ultimate defeat. Genesis 3.15. Fifteen words in the Hebrew is the glue that connects the scripture's singular theme of Christ's redemptive work for fallen mankind. It's the seed of that theme that goes throughout the whole scripture from Genesis to revelation. Now within that theme, there are two Christ centered threads. One is red and one is white threads and they weave in and out throughout the whole scripture. The white thread is the lamb of God. The red thread is the cross. I could say the, the lamb's cross The cross of Christ, that's red, the blood, the lamb is white. And interestingly, on my way here, I was listening to Adrian Rogers and he actually, I couldn't believe this. He was talking about Satan. Did any of you hear him this morning? He was talking about Satan. He said, there's three threads in the Bible. (laughs) I I was listening. Uh, What's the third one? He said, there's a golden thread as well. And that's the second coming of Christ when he comes as king. And I thought, yeah, i got to add that to my message. There's three threads. Now, as Scripture would unfold, this promise, Genesis 3.15 is a promise of a coming Savior. It's a promise. It's also a prophecy, a messianic prophecy, and it's a curse. It's three things in one. This, This would, as Scripture unfolds, you know, progressive revelation, this key verse would be renewed in the additional covenants, and it would be amplified by way of more messianic prophecies and more God-given promises. But this is the seed, seed form. The judgment on Satan began with the prophecy that there was to be enmity. In other words, hostility, antagonism, hatred between him and the woman. Who put that enmity between him and the woman? Who? Who said, I will put The Lord put the enmity between Satan and the woman. No enmity, we think of that word and we don't usually think of it as a good thing. It's not good to have enemies, is it? It's not a good thing to have enemies. Sometimes we can't help it that we have enemies. But we always think of it sort of as, well, I don't want any enemies. But enmity against evil is a good thing. Enmity against evil is a virtue. We as believers are to hate evil. And we are to oppose. We're to stand in opposition To all that is wicked in this world. This enmity was good news for Adam and Eve. Because it meant that Eve was not going to be Satan's ally. She had been used by Satan as a tool to get to Adam. But here's good news. She's not going to be his ally. She is going to be his enemy. She's going to be his enemy. So that's a clue. It's a clue that she was going to get right with God and she was going to hate Satan for his wicked deception and all the dreadful consequences that listening to him had brought upon not only her own life, but the life of her husband and the life of all her future children. Her eyes were indeed opened when she ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because now she realized evil. She realized that Satan was not her friend and what he had told her was not for her own personal benefit so that she could be like a god. She now realized that he had beguiled her. She admitted that, right? He had tricked her. He had deceived her because he had the darkest of hostile motives toward her, toward Adam, and most especially toward the Lord. Now, the term woman not only directly speaks of of eve directly it is eve but as further revelation would reveal unveil it prophetically looked to israel israel the nation of israel the symbolic woman from whom the redeemer would come the one who would crush satan and once satan discovered that he doesn't discover it until you know god gets to abraham and you know isaac and everything but once he discovers that It would be that it would be through Israel that the Messiah would come. She and her people became the great object of his malicious attacks and enmity. And that continues to this day. There's no other explanation for why the world is so opposed to that one little country and the the Jewish people like they have been. No other explanation but the enmity of Satan. There's also a third woman. That is included in this prophecy, 15 words, but it's got so much meaning to it. And she too would only be revealed with the passing of time and progressive revelation. She was the female who would give birth to the Redeemer by way of a supernatural conception. And her name was Mary, Mary, the mother of Jesus. Now, so it it points to directly to Eve, also to Israel and and to Mary. Now we ask who or what is meant by the term seed of of Satan and seed of of the woman. Because normally in the context of people, the word seed refers to biological descendants. Well, that's not possible with Satan or with the woman. Why is it not possible with Satan? Well, because he's a spirit and he doesn't have seed to reproduce. Angels do not reproduce. Why is it not possible with the woman? because women don't have the seed. Men have the sperm, the seed. So in this case, it can't be biological seed for either one of them. So the seed refers to spiritual children. The seed of Satan is his spiritual children, and that agrees with other scripture, such as uh, 1 John 3, 8, where it says that those who are given over to sin are of their father, the devil. And remember when Jesus was speaking to the religious leaders of Israel, and he said they are of their father, the devil the devil and james says whoever therefore will be a friend of the world is an enemy of god so the spiritual children of the seed of the of satan are unbelievers unbelievers and in contrast to unsaved human enemies of god the seed of the woman refers to all those who would be brought into uh, god's family by their faith in this coming savior who would crush satan's head So this prophecy actually forecasts the age-long conflict between the children of God and the children of, of Satan. And that was tragically played out right away with the first two sons ever born. Cain was a seed of Satan, and he was at enmity with his brother Abel, who was a godly seed, a true child of God. Well, there's another meaning to the two seeds. The word Zerah in Hebrew is seed. It has a collective and an individual meaning. So, you know, multiple seeds, spiritual children, but then there's also an individual meaning. There was to be one primary seed of the serpent and one primary seed of, of the woman. The ultimate seed of Satan would be the Antichrist. He is called the man of sin because he will be human, a man, And he's also called the son of perdition because he will be possessed by Satan himself. So he is Satan's counterfeit, Christ, because he is the Satan man, like Christ is the God man. And those are the ultimate seeds, the Antichrist and Christ. The two most interesting words of the Proto-Evangelium are her seed, her seed, that combination of words, never appears elsewhere in the scripture because the seed of a woman is a totally uh, unique concept. And it can only be interpreted to mean it was a prediction of some kind of a supernatural conception because we all know that women do not have seed. Well, we further learn from this prophecy that the one who would be supernaturally conceived of a woman would be male because it says he is heel, his heel. It's going to be not a woman from a woman, but a man from a woman. (laughs) And this male would be conceived of a virgin or else it would have said his seed, but it's her seed. A virgin conception would mean that the promised Savior, the Messiah, would not inherit Adam's sin nature from his father, because that's where the sin nature and the blood comes from the father—the injection of the sperm into the baby, not the mother. The mother's blood is completely separate from the baby's blood. So the Adamic sin nature comes through the father. He didn't have a human father, so that means he had to be divine. Because he was divine, that meant he was not going to be under Satan's dominion. He wasn't going to be under sin's dominion. Therefore, he could have mortal combat with Satan. You and I don't do that. What do we do? We kind of just, yeah, deliver us from evil. We put on our armor and we flee. (laughs) We flee. Don't dialogue with Satan. But Christ could, and yet he would be human because he was going to be born from a woman. So what is this all about? Pretty obvious to us, isn't it? The God-man, Jesus Christ. Progressive revelation of scripture would give additional predictions of a virgin conception. Such as Isaiah 714. I'm going to give you a sign. Ahab, guess what? A virgin is going to conceive and bear a son and his name will be what? Emmanuel, God with us. There's others, but Jeremiah 31:22 is one that's often overlooked. It says, "A woman shall compass a man. A woman shall compass a man." Well, these prophecies were fulfilled in the fullness of time when God sent forth his son made of a woman. A young virgin named Mary conceived a man child by way of the Holy Spirit, and his name was to be Jesus, Yeshua, Jehovah Savior, seed of the woman, and any doubt regarding the identity of who this seed of the woman was is cleared away in Galatians 3.16, which says the seed is Christ. No doubt about it. Genesis 3.15 is God's unconditional covenant promise known as the Adamic covenant. So we've had the Edenic and the Adamic <laughs> covenants. This promise of a savior was not just for Adam and Eve. It's for all of their descendants. It's for all mankind. The proto-evangelium highlights the wonder of God's grace in that the moment man needed good news, he received good news. Isn't that just like our, our, our savior? God announced good news the minute he needed it. However, let me be clear. I want you, if you don't understand anything else I say today, let's remember this. God's grace involves more than just meeting man's needs. Salvation, although salvation in Christ is absolutely the greatest news there is for man. That's why it's called the good news. The gospel is the good news. It's the greatest news. When I first heard that, I, I just my first reaction was that's just too good to be true. You're kidding me. I give you my sin and you give me your salvation and righteousness. <laughs> Who would turn that away? Only a dummy. But it's, it's just wonderful news. It's the greatest news that there is for man. But ultimately, ultimately, it's about his glory. If we don't think that way, we're thinking man's we're man-centered instead of being Christ-centered. Ezekiel tells us that everything the Lord does is for his heart. Holy name's sake. The Apostle Paul repeatedly tells Christians that the blessings of salvation are to the praise of the glory of God's grace. Satan's defeat and man's salvation are the means of demonstrating and declaring the glory of the Lord Jesus, who is the one who accomplished both of those works. He's the one who defeated Satan, And he's the one who provided man salvation, and he did both in the same place on the cross. So let's remember that. So we're not man-centered. When you hear testimonies, it shouldn't be all about me, me, me. Look what he did for me, but now I can serve him, him, him. It's about his glory. So the first promise of a Savior makes it clear that he must be a man. And now that should have been a fact that was important for the Jews to remember as they were offering all of their animal sacrifices over the centuries. <laughs> they needed to focus on the fact that those sacrifices, just like the sacrifice the Lord's going to make in a minute to um, cover them with animal skins. You know, he's going to shed blood, kill an innocent sin substitute, an animal sacrifice, that, that all those animal sacrifices did absolutely nothing to reverse the curse of sin. No, they were just types, you know, in anticipation of the once-for-all sacrifice of the Lamb of God. They needed to remember that, which is amazing to uh, think about how how badly the Jewish people want a temple again, right? They want a temple. Sitting there where the Mosque of Omar is today, they want a temple. Why do they want a temple? So they can again begin their animal sacrifices. They're so blind to see that it's already been done. Well, in the double-bruising part of the Proto-Evangelium, we learn that the woman's seed would bruise the serpent's head. That would be, of course, speaking of Satan... While the serpent would only be successful in bruising what? What part of his body? His heel. His heel. Now, the word bruised has several meanings, but literally it means crushing. Crushing here. A serpent's head. You know, if, you, if you're going to have a snake in your yard, like I do. I've even had them three times in my house. <laughs> Finally find out found out they were getting through the dryer vent. But if you're going to kill a serpent, don't go for the tail. <laughs> Don't go for the heel. <laughs> go for the head. That's the best way to kill a certain. I mean, I mean, a certain a serpent, a crushing blow to the head that speaks of a fatal wound, especially in the case of of a serpent. S- Christ slowly with his heel, <laughs> he slow. This is figuratively speaking, but he slowly crushed Satan's head. And he began that crushing by his sinless, righteous life during which Satan never you know he was always trying to tempt Christ to sin to mess up started with the temptation in the wilderness but then he well he either wanted to kill him or he wanted to mess up and answering a question so that he would be they they wouldn't think of him as the the Christ anymore you know so he had the Pharisees asking all kinds of trip up questions and the Nazarene's trying to push him off a cliff. And tempting him to do something to disqualify himself. He, but he never, he never did sin, did he? he? And he proved himself perfectly righteous because he never succumbed to temptation. And that was the crushing blow, the beginning blow on the serpent's head. But then a further bludgeoning blow was when he bore the penalty for all mankind's sin on the cross. That was the ver- worst blow to the head. Well, there was another really bad blow to his skull crushing blow when up from the grave he arose (laughs) the resurrection as the first fruit of the resurrection jesus made it possible for all men by faith in him to also experience victory over satan's greatest tool death over sin and death because i live ye can live also It says, for this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Hallelujah. (laughs) Now, he'll have one more further blow to his head, and that is when the Lord Jesus casts him into the lake of fire to be rid of him forever and ever. Well, for God to be able to reverse the consequences of man's sin without doing harm to his holiness and to his justice, he did have to deal with the penalty of sin, which is death. It was the only adequate payment is death. That is why he allowed Satan to bruise the heel of the one who was crushing his head, the woman's seed. However, the bruising of a heel predicted the ineffectiveness of Satan's efforts to frustrate the Messiah's redemptive work. Now, in this case, the word bruising in Hebrew, it has more than one meaning. It can mean crushing, but interestingly, it can also mean nipping, nipping, nipping. And I I read several commentators, and it was so good that Satan was just like a little puppy dog, constantly nipping at the Savior's heel. All throughout his life, nipping at it, you know, trying to frustrate him, trying to tempt him. Even on the cross, all those dogs, you know, those people down there were nipping. You know, if you are who you say you are, come down from the cross. It's just nipping, nipping, nipping. But it wasn't a fatal, it wasn't a fatal wound. Like a puppy dog on your heel, right? It's irritating. And, and of course, he proved it wasn't fatal when he rose from the dead. So it doesn't, which would you rather have? A bruise to your head or a bruise to your heel? Give me the heel anytime. And again, I think that the Lord explained this to his Emmaus disciples on that very day of his wondrous victory over Satan. The very day he rose from the tomb. And he's telling them, you know, ought not the Christ to have suffered? What do you think that bruised heel was? It was a suffering Messiah, a suffering Savior, and yet not a defeated Savior because it was just his heel and here I am, guys. Of course, they would know it when he broke the bread. Well, in hearing God's curse on Satan, Adam and Eve must have lifted, I mean, they're standing before the Lord like this, you know, covering their bodies with their fig leaves, and they hear this curse on Satan, and don't you know, they must have lifted up their heads in the sudden realization of fresh hope. This is the first time they heard the gospel message, the good news of salvation. By by hearing the term woman's seed, they would realize that they weren't going to die immediately. He wasn't going to strike them dead right then and there because they would reproduce. It was strange. Well, they hadn't had biology class yet, so they... <laughs> they probably didn't understand about the sea, but it did speak of reproduction. In the words about a coming redeemer, they would also, again, have hope of living spiritually, being uh, reconciled to God spiritually. And hearing that good news, they were now ready to humbly accept God's way of dealing with their sin. Not their way with fig leaves, but they were ready to accept God's way. So what we find in verses 20 and 21, we have the record of two significant acts. The first one was by Adam, and it was a confession of faith, actually. The second one was an act performed by the Lord, and it was a covering for sin. So a confession of faith and a covering for sin. Now, although I have been referring to Eve as Eve... Throughout our study so far, technically, she didn't receive that name until Genesis 3.20. She's been called female. She's been called helpmeet. She's been called wife. She's been, call, been called woman. <laughs> and if you look over at Genesis 5.2, she's even referred to as Adam because they're one flesh or so they're both Adam. But it was only after the fall, only after the announcement of the Proto-Evangelium... And after the curse on them, the judgment on them, that Adam named her Eve. That's very significant. The Hebrew word is Chava. Chava. And you know what it means? To give life. Life. Life or life giver. Now, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, says, and Adam called his wife's name Life. Eve means life. In Greek, the word is Zoe. You don't know anybody named Zoe? Zoe? Yeah. They're kids. That means life. It's a wonderful name. Zoe, it's where we get zoology, where we get zoo, you know, life. By giving his wife the name Life, that rhymed, We learn that Adam had paid very close attention to the Lord's words. He believed God's words about a promised Messiah through his wife who would defeat Satan and somehow, didn't know how, but somehow he would undo the curse on them regarding death. And he gave expression to his faith in God's word God's word specifically about a promised Messiah, he gave confession of his faith to that by naming his wife, Life. That was a confession of faith. And Moses gives us the reason for why Adam did that. He did it because he understood that she was to be the mother of all the living. Even though he had just heard that they were to return to the dust of the earth, Eventually, they would physically die. He didn't call his wife by a name that meant the mother of all dying, did he? This is a confession of faith. He believed the promise of God concerning salvation by way of a very unique seed of woman. And you know that that is all it has ever taken to be saved. Faith in God's word about a virgin born seed of a woman. That's all it's ever taken. So is Adam ever stay awake at night wondering if Adam's going to be in heaven? (laughs) No? You have better things? (laughs) Well, he is. We're going to meet Adam. Adam is going to be in heaven. He is in heaven. What about Eve? Is she going to be there? Nah, not Eve. Yes, Eve will be there too. (laughs) Now, we know that Eve will be there by a number of ways. First of all, she realized her former error in mistrusting God's word. Because she acknowledged that she had been beguiled by the serpent. She admitted she had been deceived by the serpent. We also find that right away she was a submissive woman. (laughs) She did not dispute Adam's name for her. She didn't say, oh, I don't like that. It's too short. Not (laughs) pretty enough. (laughs) And her silence speaks of her agreement with that name choice. Also, we know that later on when she gave birth to her firstborn son, Cain, originally she thought that he was the fulfillment of the prophecy. She was wrong, but it tells us that she was expectantly looking for the promised one, wasn't she? But you know how we know best of all that both of them are going to be in heaven, that they, they were truly saved? We know best of all because what the Lord did next, and he wouldn't have done it if he didn't know their hearts and that they believed, verse 20 records the act of faith performed by Adam but verse 21 tells us of an act of mercy performed by the Lord it was an act that did indicate forgiveness and acceptance of that fearfully ashamed couple who stood before him he provided his covering for them and he did it by way of the skin of an animal or perhaps two animals if you had an educated guess, what kind of animal would you say it was? I'd say a lamb, wouldn't you? Abel was a, he kept a, shock, a sheep. I can't think of the flock of sheep. So I think that he offered either one uh, one lamb or two lambs. Probably two, one for each of them. Even though they deserved death, God mercifully provided for them sin substitute. They learned that a covering, and the word for clothed there is Kippur, which means covering, atonement, Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, the day of covering. They learned that a covering for their sin could only be provided by God, and it had to be through the shedding of blood, the blood of an innocent uh, creature, in this case, an animal. So, and all of that was in anticipation of the once for all Passover lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. In the paradise garden, Adam and Eve saw blood shed for the first time. The first time blood was shed, neither one of them saw it because Eve was a rib and Adam was asleep. But now they saw it. And this oh the impact on them as they watched God in the person of the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus, select and slaughter one or two of their innocent little animal companions must have been tremendous. They'd never seen death before. They'd never seen shed blood before. It was a graphic, very graphic way for the Lord to teach them what sin and death really meant. And likewise, every death that they would witness after that during their long lives, beginning with their own son, Abel, would remind them of their own appointment with the grave one day. And this would serve the purpose of causing them to cling to the promise of of the coming Savior all the more. Isn't that what death does for us? Causes us to cling to the promise of the Lord Jesus so much more. They must fully trust the word of God for life after death. In Genesis 3.22, we have insight into another council session of the triune God. They determined that the presence of the tree of life in the midst of the garden would be a problem because of the probability that Adam would reach forth his hand and this time eat of another forbidden fruit, which would be the tree of life. If he did that, they would live eternally on a cursed earth in corrupt flesh and bone bodies. Man would become an indestructible fallen creature living forever in these bodies. You wouldn't want that, would you? So it was imperative that Adam and Eve be banished from the garden. So Moses tells us that God had to actually drive them out. Oh, they didn't want to leave. Would you want to leave a utopian garden? They didn't want to leave and go out in the the sin-cursed earth where they had been told they would endure much sorrow. Well, after driving them out in one further act of uh, love and grace, and that was an act of grace that he did that. But another act of grace was that he put angelic guards on either side of the eastern gate into the garden temple. It's like the temple on earth. That's the tabernacle was the Garden of Eden. And on either side of the eastern gate into that garden temple, he put put a cherubim on either side. And above them is this really weird flaming spinning sword thing. And that's to protect them. It says it's to keep the way. (laughs) There's so much in here and you've got to read your notes. I don't know how I'm going to word this, but he is protecting man from going physically, trying to physically get to the tree of life, which is what man is always trying to do, physically earn his way, you know, walk into it physically, grab a fruit and do it his own way, with his own hand. That's what all religions are. He's protecting the way. What is the term the way? Look at the end of verse 24. To keep the way of the tree of life. There's only one way to the tree of life, and it's spiritual. It's by faith. By faith to the tree of life, the cross. So there's a lot of symbolism in there. But later in history, when God was present with man, it would be represented by his Shekinah glory. Now, where was that Shekinah of glory hovering over? Over the, the, okay, you've got the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, later the temple. And the, inside the Holy of Holies is the Ark of the Covenant, On the top of the Ark of the Covenant is the mercy seat. And what did God tell Moses? What did he say to put protecting the, uh, and by the way, this is on the east side of the tabernacle. Um, What did he put protecting over the mercy seat? Two golden cherubim with their wings touching, which I wish I had a picture of, but you, you you know what I'm talking about. Well, only one man could go into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat between the two golden cherubim once a year. And that was the high priest of Israel was on the day of covering the day of atonement. And did you know that he would sprinkle blood on that mercy seat seven times and he would do it with his finger seven times? Did you know that? Seven. So it would be perfect and complete atonement, anticipatory for the passover but this would cover the sins of his people for another year anyway here's what i want to close with <laughs> did you know and i just discovered this this week and it made my heart burns this is the heartburn sermon did you know that the lord jesus who is our great high priest and he is also the sacrifice isn't he he's the sin sacrifice he is the lamb on the mercy seat, so to speak. He is the mercy seat, actually. But when he, he, he presented his blood in his atonement work, seven times. Did you know that? Seven times. It says in Leviticus 16, 14, seven times, the high priest would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. Seven times. Seven times the Lord Jesus shed his blood for us. On the cross, in the work of atonement, I should say. It began, number one, in Gethsemane. He agonized so much that what did he do? He sweat drops of blood. That's one. When Pilate unjustly scourged him with 39 lashes, he shed his blood. When a, when a crown of thorns was pressed down into his scalp, He shed blood when a Roman nail, a long Roman nail was hammered into his right hand. That is four. When another Roman nail was hammered into his left hand, five. When yet another Roman nail was hammered into both of his feet together, crossed over one nail, six, seven, when a spear went through his side. And out gushed a mixture of blood and water. You know what that mixture of blood and water proved? What did he die of? Of course, he gave up his own spirit. But physically, he died of a broke, a ruptured heart. A broken heart. Did that make your heart burn? Yeah. It did me. So seven times, the atonement work of the promise of the woman for the sons and daughters of Adam was perfect. And it was Complete. And that's why he could utter my favorite word in all the Bible, te telestai. It is finished. It is finished. And aren't you glad for that? Let's pray. Let's pray. (laughs) Father, Father, thank you so much for all that you've taught us. Thank you for these women and their obvious hunger for your word. Thank you that the last Adam undid all the terrible effects of the first Adam. He sweat. Adam was going to sweat from the brow, for, you know, all the, the part of the curse, but Jesus swept drops of blood. Adam, the first Adam brought death, and the second Adam, the last Adam, tasted death for every man. The first Adam oh, brought nakedness. Jesus hung in nakedness on, on the cross, enduring the shame for the joy set before him. The first Adam brought the curse. Second, the last Adam literally became the curse of sin for us. The first Adam brought sorrow. The last Adam is a man, was a man of sorrows for us. The first Adam and that flaming sword brought that sword. And he's also brought a sword and enmity in this world and all the suffering. But the last Adam was pierced in his side by a sword, evidencing a broken heart by the flow of that blood and water, but he just took all, he, he took care of everything having to do with all the bad effects from the first Adam. So we praise you for the last Adam, our Savior, the Lamb of God, the King of Kings, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.